Alrighty, let's dive into the story of somebody else who received a whole bunch of blessings from God uh, to be used in God's purposes. And that was a guy by the name of William Wilberforce. And uh, he came across my radar this week. I love his story. And, and every time I hear different um, retellings of it, I'm just inspired of, of a life lived to the glory of God and what God can do through a person who will commit themselves to God's cause in the world. Um, he was a politician who lived in England. He died 190 years ago yesterday, and that's what kind of brought him back to my mind again. And uh, he's known for a whole bunch of different things. Uh, for example, he was really instrumental in helping to start the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. You know it today as the RSPCA and uh, uh, all the good work that was done in that sphere. He also helped to start the Church Missionary Society. And uh, Jay earlier prayed for Sam and Penny. Um, they're a part of that ongoing work that is continuing today as people take the good news of Jesus right around the world. And he was a, a really influential person in getting that society up and running. But the thing that most people would identify William Wilberforce with is helping to abolish slavery in the British Empire, being a driving force, a public face, uh, to keep that in front of the attention of people until eventually change occurred. And God used uh, William Wilberforce to do an incredible amount of good through his career as a politician. Um, but I just want to tell you a little bit of his life story uh, to prepare us for what God wants to say to us today about our life story. He was from a wealthy family in the north of England, but after his father died, he was sent away to boarding school, and this is primary school age that this happened. And where he went to boarding school was uh, closer to London in the south of England, uh, and his family was from the north, and he had relatives who lived not too far away. And since his mum and grandparents were way up in the north, uh, when he had time off from school, he'd go and stay with his uncle and aunt. Um, and these were uh, what we would call now Methodists. Anyone know what a Methodist is? Well, see, in those days, you know, you had the religious establishment, you had respectable Christianity, and then you had this very excitable bunch of people who seemed to take things a little bit far and go a little bit too enthusiastic with their faith, and that was this new movement called Methodism. And his uncle and aunt were like that, where um, the Christianity that William grew up with was kind of that staid, respectable, don't take it too seriously, don't go too overboard. Um, his, his relatives were just on fire and wanted to change the world for Jesus, and that really rubbed off on William. But when his grandfather and mother, saw some of the ideas that he was taking on board, they kind of freaked out a bit. And so they pulled him out of the school that he was in and, and brought him closer to home to kind of remove him from this overly religious influence in his life. And so um, over time, he kind of drifted away from some of that fervour that he had to be in tune with God and God's purposes for his life. Um, so as a, a rich young kid, he did what a lot of rich young men did, and they you know, got into the party lifestyle and, and just went down that track. He finished university. At the age of 21, he got elected as a member of parliament. Um, that, that was the career that he had set for himself. Um, but that career choice really reflected what he was really good at. Uh, he had the gift of the gab. Do you know anyone who's just, like, people just loved to, to listen to him. He was witty, he was funny, people would just gather around, listen to him tell stories. He was a life-of-the-party kind of guy. Um, so where in a social situation I might be happier reading the notice board or getting into a book, uh, he, was the, he was the opposite. He was like, I want to gather me a crowd. I want to be, be in the middle of things, I want to be telling the funny stories, getting the laughs, I want to be the life-of-the-party guy. That was William Wilberforce. Um, and so he, he really pursued that, and it was paying off. He became very popular among the the, the higher social uh, circles um, and, and started to have some influence in Parliament. But after a few years, um, he had a bit of a spiritual reawakening. 
Uh, God really got hold of him uh, after three or four years of being uh, in Parliament. And he started to think, well, is this what I should be doing with my life? Because after all, he entered Parliament because he was popular, he was the life of the party, a bit of a party animal and part of a scene that wasn't real godly. Um, he's, made, he's thinking, well, maybe if I'm going to be a godly man, maybe being in these circles isn't where I ought to be anymore. Um, and, and he thought about the talents that got him there and the recognition that he had and the ego that it stoked. And said, oh, that, that's not really producing good character in me. Maybe I need to pursue something a bit different. So he asked somebody who he knew and he had great respect for. Um, and that person was uh, probably known to most of us as the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, uh, a minister by the name of John Newton. And Newton counselled Wilberforce to trust that even though he didn't go into politics to honour God, even though the way he got into politics was by being a party animal and indulging in a lifestyle that people might have enjoyed but it wasn't really reflecting God's values, even though he got there under his own steam for his own purposes and was doing it in his own way, maybe God still had a hand in that. And maybe God had put him there for his purposes, knowing that this moment would come. So William decided to take that seriously and started to pray about that and think, well, what am I here for? If I'm meant to be here, if it wasn't an accident, why would God have me in Parliament? And he came up with two basic things. He wrote in his diary in 1787. So remember, he entered uh, Parliament at the age of 21. Now he's about 28. And he, he concludes this. God Almighty has placed before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade, and the reformation of manners. We could use him in my household, I can tell you. But in case you're thinking manners just means no burping at the table, it means a lot more than that. It means this is how we live, this is how we behave, this is how good godly morals get exercised in the way that we do life. And he saw his purpose as to be an influence in the nation to help people live out godly morals in their everyday life and to see the abolition of the slave trade. So, long story short, uh, as I said earlier, what he's most known for, as much as he did in that, uh, that area of reforming public life, what he's most known for is the work that he did in the slave trade. And that's what I want to hone in on today. Um, he kept pushing year after year after year. He kept reintroducing bills to Parliament and they would get defeated time after time after time. And despite the fact that he was a brilliant communicator, one guy described him as this little bloke who when he started speaking would transform into a giant. You know, he had everyone's attention, he could really own the room. But even though he was this gifted communicator that could really hold people, he could speak persuasively, he had these incredible networks of people, he just wasn't getting this thing over the line. But after nine years of um, just really gutsy, hard work, he finally felt that he was on the edge. You know how in politics they kind of know the numbers? Um, so you, you, you introduce this thing knowing that it's going to fail, but you're just going to keep going and keep going, and eventually people will you'll kind of win them over. Well, he was at that point where it was like, now is the time. We've got the numbers. I've been speaking to people. I know where they're at. This is going to succeed. After nine years, we are going to get slavery abolished. So they have the debate, they're going to have the vote, and it just so happens that on the night that they're going to have this vote, there's a new opera that opens in town, this Italian opera. And of course, in the upper you know, social circles, what better place to be seen than at this culturally highbrow event? So a bunch of the guys who had committed to vote yes for his bill didn't turn up. They went to the opera instead. And he wrote in his diary that night after his bill was narrowly defeated, he said, enough at the opera to have carried it. Very much vexed. 
I can't imagine how you just write so politely, very much vexed. <laughs> for, for sake! <laughs> That's how I'd be feeling. Yeah, you've poured yourself into something for nine years. You've been working and slaving away at this cause which will see the emancipation of millions. You've been hearing reports from guys like John Newton, who was part of that slave trade, to countless other doctors and, and people who'd been involved in the industry who've come and met with you and who have described to you the horrors of over a million people dying on the voyages over, of, of the terrible conditions that people were in, of families torn apart, of all of this wickedness going on that is just tearing apart millions upon millions of lives. And your empire is profiting off it, and you've finally gotten to the point where, you, where enough people in power are going to make a difference and they go to the opera to be seen instead of being a part of this work? That would be soul-destroying, wouldn't it? And when you ask the question, God, what have you even got me here for? I thought this was it and now that happens. Couldn't you have done something? Couldn't you have rained out? Couldn't you have caused the opera singer to get tonsillitis? Couldn't you have done something? <laughs> To, to get this across the line, I thought you were a part of this. would have felt like pushing a boulder uphill. You know, it would take another 11 years or so before the actual practice of trading slaves was banned. And 46 years before the practice of holding slaves was banned in British colonies. It was going to be a long fight. In fact, it was his life's work. Three days after that final bill was passed to uh, abolish slavery in British colonies, he died. That was his life's purpose completed. And there were plenty of things that Wilberforce got wrong in his life, like all of us. But when I read of his life, and I've only given you just a really brief overview, some of the things that he um, gave himself to, some of the things that he supported with his finances, with his time, with his energies, with his abilities, uh, were remarkable. And as I think of his dedication to serving God with the gifts he's been given, I just feel that sense of his welcome into heaven with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that all leads me to today's text, which is in Matthew 25. It's a pretty well-known passage. Uh, we've covered it here in the last uh, few years. Matthew 25 from verses 14 to 30. And like I always say, I'll put the words up on the screen for you, um, but I'd love for you to follow along in your own Bible so that you can uh, keep track of that as well. Matthew 25 from verse 14. This is what it says. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way... The man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached and he said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. 
Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And his master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a pretty sobering tale, that one, and it's a well-known one. In fact, um, have you ever heard somebody described as being talented? You know, the whole reason we use that word is because of this story. The word talent literally means a sum or a weight of money. Um, but in our language and in our culture, we, we associate that word with what God has given us that should be used for his glory. Now, over time, of course, we've lost sight of the the fact that it was God who gave it and it should be used for his glory and it just tends to refer to, hey, this is the stuff I'm good at, this is what I can do. But that's its original meaning. It's what God gave for God's purposes that we get to use for his glory. And so um, this idea of, of receiving talents is important. And I want you to notice as you look at verse 15 that the master didn't just kind of fling him out there and say, okay, uh, here's a bunch of stuff, go and use it. He actually gave careful thought. He gave to each one only what they could handle. In other words, he was paying attention to their lives. He knew what each one needed. He knew what each one was able to handle and would be able to use for his purposes if they so chose. So one got five, one got two, and one got one. And those first two servants put the master's money to work. And I love the way that that's described. And it reminds me when I'm um, maybe in workaholic mode or maybe everything in life depends on Mike mode. Have you ever been there where it's like, man, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and it's relying on me and I'm the only one who knows. And you, you can tend to make it all about you sometimes. So, no, I'm the only person who ever does that. That sucks. Okay. But, you know, you can be like that sometimes. But, but those guys, what did they do? They put the master's money to work. It doesn't say they got to work. It doesn't say they, they kind of you know, worked themselves to the bone. They just took what they were given and they put it to work. What a great attitude to life. God, what have you given me? I, I want to put that to work. I want to make sure that I'm releasing that for the purposes to which you gave it to me. And you were paying attention. You, you didn't give me more than I could handle. You gave me just the right amount that I would be able to use for your glory. Um, that's, that's a good way to, to look at the things that God has given us in life as well. And these first two servants did that. They put the master's money to work. And the master's money did what the master intended it to do. They released it to do its thing and it came back and it was multiplied. It was doubled in each case. The last servant was a bit different. And he proved in the way he conducted himself that he didn't actually know his master and he didn't know himself. And that's something that's really worth tuning into as you look at the passage and I'd invite you to flick open in your own uh, device or in your own hard copy of the Bible uh, to verse 24 where there were the, there's these astounding words and we've been reflecting as we had communion and Jamie talked about this amazing hope that we have when we look back in history and see that Jesus our Saviour lived and died for us and he rose again and he's promised to come back again. He has done so much. He has done everything needed to give us eternal life. 
He sent his Holy Spirit to live inside us as, as a guarantee of what is coming, but also as the experience of his presence here and now. God has blessed us in so many different ways, like Jay said with Abraham, you know, to tune into the fact, hey, God has blessed in this way and in this way and in this way. But this guy, when he describes the master, how does he describe him in verse 24 of Matthew 25? The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. As if the master hadn't given those blessings in the first place. As if the master was a taker and not a giver. Um, and he had no idea of what the master's character really was. Um, he had no idea of the generosity of the master. I mean, look at the, the way uh, the master shows his character in the story. First of all, he pays attention to his servants. He's in tune with what they're able to handle and only gives them what they can handle. Secondly, when, when they do well, he congratulates them. And what does he do? He doesn't just take what they've earned and say, good, that's going into my bank. He says, no, come and share with me my happiness. Come and be a part of what you've been involved in producing. Let me share the blessings that I have actually achieved through you in giving you this money and letting you put it to work. So the master is a master who is generous, who is inclusive, who enjoys the company of his servants and wants to um, cherish life together with them. He's not this harsh, distant, you know, taker of a person who's just in it for himself. Nothing in the story indicates that what this servant said has any basis in fact. But yet that's what he told himself in order to justify what he wanted to do. And that's what Jesus puts his finger on next. The master says, this isn't about who I am and what I'm like. This is about you, evil and lazy. And you think that you're acting the way you are because you're afraid. You know, it's too much pressure. I don't know what to do with it. Maybe I'm not as gifted as the other guys. And you make excuses for not doing what I've asked you to do. But the reality is, it's just that you're evil and you're lazy. That's, that's a heart check, isn't it? Ooh, could that ever be me? Could that be the reason that I don't want to be a part of using what God's given for his purposes in the world? Because I want to make my life all about me and what I want instead of being a real servant and being about what my master's called me to do? That's a really real challenge for all of us as we think about the third servant's attitude and how he actually conducted his life. And I wonder how the first two servants felt when they had their fellow servant hearing that and saw the outcome of that, where the master said, okay, this is what you think of me? You think I'm that kind of person? Well, fine. Don't have anything to do with me. Out you go. You're not a part of my kingdom. You're not a part of my family. You've self-excluded. You had the opportunity to be a part of it, but you chose not to believe who I really am and not to see who you really are. You chose to go your own way. And that's really the outcome for that third servant. But for those first two, they got to share their master's happiness and to receive more of the blessings that he wanted to pour into their lives. Hebrews 10. Do you know that, that verse in Hebrews 10.25? It says, hey, don't give up getting together, but spur each other on to love and good deeds. Like those first two servants, we're meant to be getting together and saying, hey, let's remind ourselves of how much God loves us. Let's remind ourselves of the blessings he's poured into our lives. Let's remind ourselves of the opportunity to love him back and to do the good things that he's prepared in advance for us to do. In the story of William Wilberforce, there was a number of people who played key roles in his life to help him to be like those first two, two servants, people who recognise the gifts they're given and put them to work in God's service. Was it an accident that Wilberforce was a brilliant communicator? No wasn't an accident. He came to see that. Was it an accident that for his own purposes he found himself in Parliament? No, it wasn't an accident. That was a gift of God. 
Was it an accident that he grew up in a wealthy family that was well connected and he was able to network and, and do fact finding and, and all the sort of stuff that would help him build a case against slavery? No, it wasn't an accident. God knew what family he was going to be born into, what their business connections would be and all that kind of stuff. He knew who, was going, who he was going to go to university with and who that person would be in later life and the, and the doors that that would open. God was in charge of all that stuff, but Wilberforce needed people in his life to say, hey, hey William, God's put you there for a purpose. Tune into that. And we need that too if we're going to use the gifts that God has given us for his purpose. You know, after that opera incident, when if it was me, I would have just been like, oh, man. So I just give it all up. I've been slaving away for, for nine years and it's just come to nothing. God, you haven't come through. I'm having a dummy spit. I'm out of here. I've given you my best. I'm, I'm done. When he was in that frame of mind, he turned back to his mentor, John Newton, for advice. What should I do? Now, I've given it my best shot. This is some stuff that John Newton wrote back in, in an amazing letter. And um, you could look it up online. It's really worth the read. And sorry for the old English, but it's actually pretty beautiful language. So I'm going to read it the way that John wrote it. He said uh, in his letter back to uh, William Wilberforce, You have no claim to my pity. There's an understanding here, isn't there? Man, you've just been through the worst experience. These guys could have changed the world. They went to a flippin' opera and you're feeling miserable about it and just ready to give up and say, you've got no cause to be sorry for yourself. Stop, stop having a pity party. What? But he goes on. Though you have a just right to my prayers and a frequent place in them, because I believe you are the Lord's servant and are in the post which he has assigned you. And though it appears to me more arduous and requiring more self-denial than my own, I know that he who called you to it can afford you the strength according to your day, and I trust he will, for he's faithful to his promise. I love kind of that, that godly older man saying, look, I'm not just going to give you pity because that's not actually what you need. You might be feeling like you want it in the moment, but what I'm going to give you is really what you need. I want to remind you of the person who called you to this post, and it's been hard, and I get it. And you've had to suffer more than I have in my pastorate. Now, I know that uh, for a Christian in your situation in Parliament, you're getting mocked and ridiculed and slandered and undermined in all kinds of horrible ways. I get it. But I want you to remind you that, that Jesus put you there. And he's going to sustain you. He's going to get you through it. Isn't that wonderful advice to give somebody, you know, having a hard time at work? You need somebody like John Newton in your life. Hey, man, God put you there for a reason. And he goes on to say, would you not be glad to have more command of your time and more choice of your company than your situation will admit? You meet with many things that weary and disgust you, which you would avoid in a more private life. But then they are inseparably connected with your path of duty. And though you cannot do all the good you wish for, some good is done. And some evil is probably prevented by your influence and that of a few gentlemen in the House of Commons, like-minded with yourself. It costs you something, many hours which you could employ more to your own personal satisfaction. It exposes you to many impertinencies from which you would gladly be exempted. But if upon the whole you are thereby instrumental in promoting the cause of God and the public good, you will have no reason to regret that you had not so much time for leisure or more retired exercise than some of us are favoured with. Nor is it possible at present to calculate all the advantages that may result from your having a seat in the house at such a time as this. 
The example and even the presence of a consistent character may have a powerful, though unobserved, effect upon others. I hope you're able to follow along with kind of the prose there, but what an encouraging letter to receive from William at this time. Yeah, I feel like I've failed. I feel like this nine years of gut-wrenching work has come to nothing. I feel like this stuff that is breaking my heart day after day just is bouncing off hard hearts of all of these people who could be changing the world with me and they'd rather just go to the opera or they'd rather fight for their economic interests. And I just feel like I can't handle it anymore. And, and he's getting this letter that says, Hey man, you might not have achieved what you wanted to achieve, but you've achieved something and that matters. And you don't even know the things that you've been a part of preventing because you haven't seen them. But God knew what would have happened if you weren't there. And God's going to sustain you in continuing to be there. And as you consistently live for him, who knows what difference that's going to make in the life of people. You know, I don't reckon it's just his workplace in the Parliament of England in that day that those truths are relevant. I think they can be relevant in your workplace or your family or your school or your street or whatever today as well. But I just want to share with you the very uh, last part of what John Newton says in this section of his letter. You're not only a representative for Yorkshire, which was the, the electorate that he uh, represented in Parliament. You have the far greater honour of being a representative for the Lord in a place where many know him not and an opportunity of showing them what are the genuine fruits of that religion which you are known to profess. What a reminder of a true calling. And this encouragement from John Newton was instrumental. Wilberforce decided to stay the course. And as you heard earlier, after another 11 gut-wrenching years, they got step one done. Okay, at least we're not transporting anymore. At least it's not uh, legal to actually be a part of the trading. And it took a whole another bunch of years. In the end, it was 46 from the time he started. Um, you can do the math and figure out what the gap was. Um, it took uh, that long for finally the owning of slaves to be banned in the British colonies. Um, it was a world-changing work. But he persevered. He used those gifts that God had given him. And eventually, they produced that fruit for eternity. So what could that look like for us? Well, that's why we're doing something we're calling the design course. Uh, and uh, let me get out another of those little books. I've put it somewhere. Oh, who knows? It'll turn up. Uh, there's, there's some books that you can collect in the foyer. Um, and we're, we're doing this over three weeks um, or three sessions. Uh, and it's going to take a bunch of different shapes. For some people, it'll be uh, watching the sessions online and then participating in a WhatsApp chat just when you're able to, chiming in and just seeing how other people are going. For others, you'll actually, at a set time, you're going to watch it together online and then chat face-to-face -face in a Zoom-like experience where you get to see each other and have conversations. For others, you might be meeting on a weeknight. For others, it might be a Sunday afternoon uh, in person. There's even some blokes, hot off the presses, who are going to be uh, chatting about this stuff over burgers. Can you believe it? Count me in, but I've already committed to another group, so I'm not sure how many I'm allowed to be a part of. Um, we're going to be getting together and seeking to be like John Newton was to William Wilberforce. Seeking to see if we can be the people who um, speak into each other's lives and help each other really get that sense of, yeah, I'm called for a purpose. I know that God has given me certain gifts and that he's been at work in ways that I don't even understand, but I can be a part of the good that he's doing in, in the world. And to help each other kind of tune into that, to not to burn out and doing stuff that we weren't created for, but to flourish in doing the things that we were created for. We talk about being in your sweet spot. That doesn't mean that everything is easy in life. It just means you know you're in the right thing. 
Um, and even when it's hard going like it was for Wilberforce at times, you've got people saying, hey, this is, this is you. This is what you were made for. I've seen you give speeches. I've seen you care for people practically. I know that gift of encouragement. I know those financial skills. I, whatever it might be that they're seeing in you, like the stuff that John Newton saw in William Wilberforce, they're saying, hey, stick this out because this is producing fruit. And eventually, maybe the whole world will get to see that. We need people like that in our lives. And you might benefit from hearing that as part of the design course as other people get to speak into your life and as you get to hear what God's word has to say about how God's made you or you might get to be a part of speaking that and, and affirming that in the life of others. My suspicion is that you'll get to do both. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be awesome to have that opportunity over these next few weeks? So if you'd like to be a part of that, um, in a little while I'm going to hand out some slips of paper. Just tick a box for the stuff that you're interested in. Um, give me your contact details. We'll make sure you can be a part of it. We'd love to see that happen over the next month or so as we go through and have these three sessions together. Uh, I think it's so wonderful that we get to, to affirm this truth of Ephesians 2. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We want to help each other to do that. We want to help each other flourish in that. Let's not waste our lives. Let's not just get together and talk about, well, this is what the Bible says and now we know it. Let's actually talk about what it means to live it out and to see it make a difference in the world around us. It's about helping us to know who our master is, how good he is, how much he's gifted us and what we can do with the gifts that he has given us. It's about giving you an opportunity to be a John Newton for someone else and to see other people's lives changed as a result. So let's not waste our lives. Let's not put our talents in a hole in the ground. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're using your talents to make yourself rich. From God's point of view, that's just a hole in the ground. Use your talents for his eternal purposes. Let your life make a difference for eternity. Like Wilberforce, you might have been in Parliament for seven years until finally you go, ah, that's why God's put me here. You might have been doing your job for a while and think that it's pointless, but maybe over the next few weeks you'll realise, crikey, there's actually a purpose in this. God has it and I get to be a part of it. That's my prayer for each of us. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, the story of William Wilberforce. And uh, as we look back in history, we are so glad that he was able to see through the purpose that you gave him, the reason that you called him into Parliament. And there were many other purposes you had. He achieved a whole lot of other things in his time there as well. But this is the one that we most look back on and that we most see has just changed the course of history. Lord, you, you give each of us different gifts and you give us um, different, I guess, quantities of that. You know what we can all handle. Um, but all of us have essential roles to play in your good purposes in the world. All of us have been called to be a part of that great commission to make disciples of all nations until Christ returns. So God, I, I pray that you would help each of us to uh, be a community that helps one another to know our calling, to pursue our calling and to persevere in our calling as we let you uh, give us the gifts that are needed to pursue that. So God, I pray that you will help us to, I guess, be brave to be willing to step out in faith, to take risks and be vulnerable and to be open about our life and what it looks like and the experiences we've had and the, the things that we feel good at and the things that we're not sure about. Lord, help us to be open enough with one another that we are able to really speak into each other's experience in the way that Newton was able to with William and to be able to invest in each other in ways that make a difference. So we uh, commit that to you in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.